0: It was late December 1956. The order to integrate the Montgomery, Alabama bus system had finally arrived. A reluctant local response to the Supreme Court's November ruling against segregated seating on public transit. And the Montgomery bus boycott had come to an end. It had been 13 months since Rosa Parks first took her seat at the front of the bus. 13 long and grueling months of walking and carpooling. And yet, speaking at a victory rally, the boycott's young chief organizer insisted that desegregation in and of itself was not and never had been his ultimate goal. A boycott is just a means to an end, proclaimed the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. The end is reconciliation, The end is redemption. The end is the creation of the beloved community. It is this type of spirit and this type of love that can transform opponents into friends. It is this type of understanding goodwill that will transform the deep gloom of the old age into the exuberant gladness of the new age. It is this love which will bring about miracles in the hearts of men. In the little more than a decade between this moment and his assassination, Martin Luther King Jr. continued to speak often about this vision of beloved community, a vision that was grounded in his belief in the sacredness of every person, the necessity of individual freedom, and the interdependence of all humanity. But while the concept of beloved community is most often associated with Dr. King, and for good reason, it didn't originate with him. The term was coined by the philosopher Josiah Royce in 1913. And the principle behind it, that the sacredness of each person demands freedom, and the interconnectedness of all people demands accountability, is woven throughout Holy Scripture. When I first looked at today's lectionary and saw the epistle reading, I couldn't help but laugh. In 2015, I took an entire qualifying exam for my doctoral program on this exact passage from 1 Corinthians. Back then, I could never have imagined preaching on it. And I wasn't sure I wanted to today either. But the longer I sat with it, the more I felt compelled to try. Because this passage has been read in a way that's oppressive and harmful. But I don't think that's the full story. And I believe that as Christians, it is our privilege and our responsibility to contextualize the contents of the Bible and to read it with great care and in community in a way that aligns with who we know God to be and how that means we should live. So, 1 Corinthians. This passage is jarring when we hear it without any additional context. At least it feels jarring to me to have someone yell at me to shun fornication. But when we consider it in context, when we explore who it's written for and what it's trying to accomplish we can look beyond what initially reads like an obsession with purity and control and toward what I think is really an invitation into mutual care and accountability, an invitation into beloved community. Well before Paul even arrived, the city of Corinth was complicated. In the year 146 BCE, the Roman army destroyed Corinth and left it abandoned. And then a century later, the emperor resettled it as a freed person's colony, a colony of people who had been formerly enslaved. These newly resident freed persons merged with the local population, and Corinth grew into a sort of quirky place, a place where things like religious identity were less tightly policed than in other Roman cities. And this means that when Paul showed up recruiting people to follow the way of Jesus, the stakes for trying out a new religious community were relatively low. And so the group of folks that he attracted were likely more diverse socioeconomically and otherwise than in many of his other churches. And this means that when Paul left Corinth, It didn't take long for this remarkably diverse community of fledgling Christians to start fighting amongst themselves about pretty much everything. When Paul caught wind of the Corinthians' factionalism, he wrote a letter back to Corinth, telling them to cut it out immediately. This command, the overarching thesis of Paul's letter, is right at the beginning in chapter one, verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you be in agreement and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be knit together in the same mind and the same purpose." And after that, the letter is effectively a series of bullet points, if you will, about what the Corinthians are fighting over. Everything from who their leader is to how they eat together, to how they understand resurrection and why they need to figure out how to get along. This passage we've heard today constitutes one of these bullet points. During his time among them, Paul taught the Corinthians that through baptism into Christ's death and resurrection, they had been set free from sin and made to share in new life. The problem is that now that Paul is gone, there are conflicting opinions about what this means. It seems that some members of the community have interpreted new life in Christ as a blank check to do whatever they want, and specifically as an invitation into uncritical and unrestrained consumption of food, of resources, and even of other people's bodies. And so Paul repeats back at them and tries to reframe for them a slogan that he's heard they've been using to justify their behavior. All things are lawful for me, he writes, but not all things are beneficial. Just because I can do something doesn't mean I should. Throughout the Roman Empire, the use of prostitutes usually enslaved people who were not afforded control over their own bodies, was extremely common. And yet Paul is saying here that this practice is not in alignment with what he understands freedom in Christ to mean. Because freedom in Christ, as Paul understands it, isn't about doing or taking whatever we want true freedom in christ is about accountability we hear this in paul's argument that follows the body is meant for the lord he insists and the lord for the body do you not know that your bodies are members of christ do you not know that your body is a temple of the holy spirit within you which you have from god and that you are not your own Paul's notion of body here is simultaneously singular and plural. He is talking about the physical bodies of individual Corinthians and also about the collective body, the body of Christ. Each individual is sacred, is a temple of the Holy Spirit, or, in the words of Martin Luther King, Jr., has etched into his personality the indelible stamp of the Creator. The sacredness inherent in each of us requires that we engage one another with respect, dignity, and love, and never with the intent of use or consumption. And because we are, through baptism, members of the body of Christ, we are accountable to the entire community and to Christ himself for the ways we treat other people's bodies and the ways we treat our own. This is new life in Christ, not doing whatever we want, taking what isn't ours to take, or exploiting the vulnerable, but exercising our freedom explicitly to prioritize the well-being of the whole. For the Corinthians, new life in Christ meant rejecting both factionalism and fornication, the Greek word is porneia, and it's probably better translated something like sexual immorality, and affording community members who differed from them in status the same rights to agency and boundaries that they enjoyed themselves. For Martin Luther King, Jr., new life in Christ meant not only ending race-based segregation, but working toward an integrated society in which our collective identity as the body of Christ is manifest in every aspect of life. For everyone, new life in Christ means building beloved community, honoring the reality of God's presence in all of us through our physical and emotional relationships, our deconstruction of oppressive systems, our use of resources, and our care of creation. In his book, Being Christian, Rowan Williams argues that one of our responsibilities as baptized Christians is to listen to the Bible in context and in community, to hear the story of God's people as it unfolds in particular times and places, and to ask together how God is telling us to live out our own chapter in a loving and Christ-centered way. Williams writes, we need to guard against the temptation to take just a bit of the whole story and treat it somehow as a model for our own behavior. Throughout its history of interpretation, this passage from 1 Corinthians and others like it have functioned to cast as bad and shameful the rich diversity of physical desires that God created and proclaimed to be good. But when we can hear it in context, can hear it as a condemnation of division and exploitation, rather than of our sacred need for healthy touch, our perspective can shift. There's one more piece of this that's worth addressing, though, and it's right at the very end, where Paul writes, you were bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. Paul is a master rhetorician, And he is very gifted at using imagery that will resonate with his specific audience. In this case, he's writing to the Corinthians, to residents of a colony populated by former slaves and their descendants. The experience of being bought and sold, of belonging to someone else, lives vividly in their collective memory. And so Paul asks the Corinthians to imagine God as their purchaser, as their slave master, and their bodies as under God's control. This then becomes part of his justification for treating the human body as imbued with sacred worth. Like Rowan Williams says, we get to decide which parts of the story are products of a particular time and place and which speak to us now. And so I submit that we reject this one. Luckily, the scriptures contain a beautiful diversity of alternatives. Psalm 139, which we've also just heard, invites us to experience God as closer to us than even a parent or partner, as so attuned to the intricacies of our bodies and spirits as to know us better than we know ourselves. And of course, there's the incarnation, which we have so recently celebrated, our belief that God sanctifies our bodies with all their needs, functions, and experiences through physical presence in the person of Jesus Christ. These parts of the story tell us that our bodies matter not because they are purchased and owned by God, but because they are loved and shared by God. In this season of epiphany, God shines God's light to illuminate difficult places in our stories and histories, and to invite us, like Philip invites Nathaniel in today's gospel, to come and see, not just to observe passively, but to discern actively what God has done and is doing in the world. And on this Martin Luther King Jr. weekend, God empowers us toward the creation of beloved community, a community that celebrates the sacred worth of every person and advocates for the well-being of all creation. May we have eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to love and to act. Amen. Chapel of the Cross is an Episcopal church in the heart of Chapel Hill and the university community. Find out more at thechapelofthecross.org. There you can find our latest news and events, connect with our pastoral care team, faith and action ministries, and offer a prayer request. You can also find us on social media, on Instagram at thechapelofthecross and on Facebook and Twitter at C-O-T-C, Chapel Hill. May you be nourished by the word to serve in the world.